This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time, and this is a Hack the Craft episode. What? <laughs> I know, shocking. That, that wasn't very smooth. Normally, we don't have chit-chat when we do Hack the Craft episodes, but I want to get this out very quickly. I searched on your name at Amazon today, and lo and behold, there's a new book up there that's available for sale. And so for people out there listening who want to pre-order your book, it is now available at Amazon and presumably at other uh, digital stores as well. And the title of the new book is? Liar's Legacy. It's number two in the Jack and Jill series. And it's because I have finally submitted it. It was six months late. It's been hell. We had to pause the podcasts for a while. I haven't been able to do a Hack the Craft episode in forever, it seems. But it's finally submitted. I finished it. And that's why we're able to do the things that we're going to do today. And amazingly enough, with all of that being said, it's probably right on the production schedule for your publisher anyway because it's within a week of exactly a year prior to the last release. I think so. I mean, like, the, the next release will be coming a, uh, within a week of the last one is what you're saying? Yeah, within a week yes. of a year. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's almost, yeah. I, I think really they will hit most of their production uh, timelines. I'll be under a lot of... Uh, pressure to get copy edits back and review pages back very quickly to keep up with the action. I think I'm probably about technically maybe a month behind where I was last year with the previous book. But the difference is there's been no, not any, like it didn't go through the editorial process. That's what had to get skipped because of that. It makes me really nervous, but um, I'm just going to trust that I, I have pretty good editorial instinct now after having done this for as long as I have, and I actually prefer editing to writing, so fingers crossed. And this is, as we said, a Hack the Craft episode, which means that there's video with this. So you can find the video for the complete episode. We will more than likely break this into parts for podcast listeners so that it doesn't get too long, but the complete video for all of the episodes will be stitched together and available on Taylor's Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash taylorstevens. And you don't have to be a, a patron to, to find it. It's just in the post section, and you'll see it available there. So Yes, let's... and it'll, it's, this will be free. Like, the, it, there's no, you don't have to have an account or anything or, or pledge or anything to be able to see these podcast Hack the Craft episodes. Okay, let's get on with it. Okay, so... Um, today we're going to discuss critical elements in chapter openings and narrative breaks. And um, for me, a lot of this stuff is instinctual. So for it's stuff that I just understand and then trying to explain it, it, it takes it, it's complicated. It's like muddy in my head. And so I had to script this out for myself to be able to explain it properly and hopefully I get it right. So um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a lot of reading off the screen. Another thing is, as we get further into this, there's a lot of color coding that is going to be really hard to translate properly to audio only. So I highly recommend that if you're confused or anything like that, do follow the links to see the videos because this is probably one of the, the most helpful uh, tutorials that I've put together yet, I think. Time will tell. So Time anyway. Time will tell. Time will tell. So when we read, right, as, as readers, the connection between the mind and page, it hijacks our senses. And our mind creates movies and our bodies respond to that. And our, it, we, physically, our hearts race, our adrenaline surges, serotonin, dopamine floods our brains. And for those moments that we fall into the story and stay under its, its virtual reality spell, to our brains, our body chemistry, it's real. I mean, so logically, we know it's not real. We're perfectly capable of separating fiction from fantasy and fantasy from reality. But our bodies are still responding to it like it's real, just like it does to memories and dreams and everything else. So our job as the author is to use words in such a way that they give the reader all the visual and contextual cues that they need that are necessary to keep that mental movie moving forward. That mental movie is everything. That is why we read, to feel, to feel alive, to feel what the characters are feeling. And this is especially critical and more difficult to achieve with chapter openings and scene breaks. The reason is because you're starting fresh at chapter openings and scene breaks. Like when you're in the middle of a scene, there's, there's already that flow. It's already that rhythm. But every time you break, it's like starting over with the, the black screen. So every time the reader picks up a new book, starts a new chapter or scene within it, they're basically starting fresh with an empty mental, mental canvas. And that mental canvas is going to stay empty until you, the author, provide a specific set of contextual cues that the reader must have before that mental movie can start. And that's really important. There, there are specific cues that they have to have. And the longer you take to provide those cues, the longer they're forced to distance themselves and hold the story at arm's length, waiting for the movie to start so they can fall into it. So not only are there specific context cues that you have to give them, there's a specific order that those context cues have to be provided for the movie to go fluidly, to, to flow. So no matter where the reader is in the story, beginnings, chapters, middle, doesn't matter, there are two things they always need to know in this specific order. Whose eyes they're seeing this scene through. So that could be whose head they're in, who the scene is happening to, because, you know, based on point of view or narrative voice, sometimes it's not always seen through the eyes of that character, it might be told, but they need to know what that scene is relating to in terms of a person, and they need to know where that character's body is in relation to time, space, and place. So without those two, those two narrative, those two cues, the narrative voice becomes disembodied from whatever else is on the page. And no matter how many other visual cues or whatever information you provide, the reader can never turn it fully into a, into a fully engaged mental movie. At best, those details, whatever else you provide, if they don't have those two critical things already, they'll become snapshots or like still pictures 
um, photographs set out side by side that can only be stitched together in hindsight once you've finally given them the threads to tie it all together. So those two things, who who this is about, the character, whatever, the, whose point of view we're in, and where their body is in relation to time, space, and place. So ideally, the reader will have both of those elements within the opening sentences of each new chapter and scene break. Failing that, if you can't, if you're not starting with the character and where that character's body is, at a bare minimum, they need to know those two things in that order before anything happens, like character in motion or dialogue or whatever, to or with that character, or really any characters for that matter. So next, in order of importance, but not always possible to squeeze into the opening sentences, is a sense of atmosphere and mood. Now, this is a bit more difficult to define because what this is specifically is a sense, not so much a thing that has to be described. It can be. It's more of a composite of the word choices you use to describe everything else, and it sets the tone of what's to follow. If this is missing, if there is no sense of atmosphere and mood contextually within the word choices that you're using for everything else, then you'll need to add a few words specifically geared to closing off any ambiguity. Because you don't want readers going into a scene thinking it's going to be light and funny, and it turns out to be very deep and dark. And the word choices that you use are going to provide that sense contextually. So next, in order of importance, are why the character is where they are, the characters, the point of view characters' frame of mind, and any other characters that are present and where those bodies are in time, space, and place. It's not always possible to get these details into the opening paragraphs. So they can be trickled out in the subsequent paragraphs if that's what it takes. What matters is that they're there, that they exist. Um, and, and they don't have to go in that particular order. These ones don't, the order that they're in doesn't matter, but they cannot go before who the character is and where that character's body is. That's where we run into trouble. And finally, after that, any other details in the order that the character sees, hears, and experiences them. And the most critical aspect with this final thing is that it has to be in the order because getting that part wrong has the potential to shut off the mental movie right as it's fully rolling. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take these concepts, which I went over them pretty quickly, and we're going to layer them over a real-life example to see how it works in the wild. And because that's a lot to take in, we're going to keep going back over them, back to the tops. Don't worry if you, if you didn't get it all, if it didn't make sense right away. We're going to go back over it and back over it and back over it piece by piece. So here's the example of a scene break opening. And, oh, sorry, video, I skipped and went too far. Okay. Um, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Excuse us while I play with the screen here a little bit. Okay. Um, this material is, gonna, is coming from Shot in the Bark by author C.A. Newsom, used with permission. Thank you very, very much. And we're going to spend, we're about to spend a lot of words and a lot of space going over and back over the same couple of paragraphs and spending so much time 
going over this material, it might give the impression that the entire book needs an overhaul, and that's very much not the case. This is a great book. If you like dogs and mysteries, witty banter, authentic, quirky characters, you'll probably enjoy Shot in the Bark as much as I have, which I really, I'm reading it now. I'm really quite enjoying it. It's available free on all ebook platforms. So if for no other reason to say thank you to CA Newsom for allowing us to use this material, you should probably go give it a look-see. And let me jump in here as, as well for a commercial for Carol, a.k.a. CA Newsom. I've read all of these books, and I love this series. I love, the, I love the characters in the series, and I always look forward to new books. So, yeah, grab the first book in the series for free. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes. So here's the context of what we're going to be working with. This is a multi-point-of-view story, and this scene break opening takes place in the middle of Chapter 10 after all of these characters have been fully established. So even though we, the listeners, uh, those who are looking at this tutorial, don't know who any of these people are, it makes perfect sense, perfect context in the, the scope of the larger story. So here's the scene, the opening scene of this break. Paper cups of bitter vending machine coffee dregs littered the scarred Formica table in front of the couch Leah shared with Anna and Donna. And I hope I'm pronouncing her name. I don't know if it's Lia or Leah, but okay. Bailey and Jim sat on a matching couch facing them, looking as helpless as Leah felt. The waiting room clock was silent and had not appeared to move the last five times she looked at it. She stared dully at the cracks in the aging turquoise vinyl upholstery. When did you find him? Bailey asked. And that's it. Just two little paragraphs. But from them, there's so much we can learn. So first, let's return to the critical story elements and color code them. And hopefully I will learn how to maneuver my own document here. This is really frustrating. <laughs> okay. So the two things the reader always needs to know in this specific order, we're color coding yellow for whose eyes they're seeing the scene through, whose head they're in, who the scene is happening to, whatever we want to call it. We're color coding green for where that character's body is in relation to time, space, and place. Next, for chapter and scene break openings especially, a sense of atmosphere and mood. And next, and that was in blue. And next we have in pink, why the character is where they are. And then in teal, a point of view, the point of view character's frame of mind. And in gray, any other characters that are present and where those bodies are in time, space, and place. And then in brown, any further details in the order that the character sees, hears, or experiences them. So now we're going to layer those colors over the excerpt. Now, not every one of these color codes is cut and dry. Some sentences and words within the sentences pull double duty, which is excellent. That's excellent craft and exactly how it should be. So the issue here, as we'll soon see, isn't what's being said or shown, but rather the order in which it's being said or shown. So remember, above all else, the reader needs to know whose head we're in and where that character's body is relative to time and space in in that order before anything happens, character, emotion, or dialogue to or with that character. Because if they don't know who it's happening to, then they have nothing to connect the details to. And if they don't know where that character's body is, 
then we are disem- th- that character's body is going to be what anchors everything. We're disembodied in time and space. So as we read this paragraph, I'm going to uh, tell you the colors. On online, it's very easy to see, but um, it, visually, but on audio, it's a little more difficult. So it starts. Paper cups of bitter vending machine coffee dregs littered the scarred Formica coffee table in front of the couch Leah shared. So the part paper cups all the way to in front of the couch is extra detail, which is necessary, but that's coming right up front. The couch Leah shared is positioning that character's body relative to time and space. So the couch Leah shared with Anna and Donna Bailey and Jim sat on a matching couch facing them. Bailey and Jim, Anna, Donna, matching couch, that is all showing us where the characters, um, other characters are in time and space. They're looking as helpless as Leah felt. So as helpless is point of view character uh, mood, uh, what's, what's going on in their frame of mind. And as Leah felt is the first time we are contextually cued into who this character, who this scene is about. And it's the word felt that clued us into that because it's telling us once, once we're specifically told what somebody's feeling, then we know that's the character that it's describing. So that's the first yellow block that we have in this paragraph at the end of the first sentence. Next in blue for atmosphere and mood, The waiting room clock was silent and had not appeared to move the last five times she looked at it. In teal, for character frame of mind, she stared dully. And then in brown, for detail, at the cracks in the aging turquoise vinyl upholstery. The next line says, when did you find him? Bailey asked. And that's in purple and it tells us indirectly why these characters are, why the character is here. Um, I'll explain more about how that does that in a little bit. So when we color code these story elements in this example, we can clearly see that while the paragraph is grammatical and we get fantastical detail, and that works well enough, this detail is coming before we know whose head we're in. It's only after we get to the words Leah felt that we are solidly anchored in regards to who this scene is happening to. We're able to understand this, who this, whose head we're in, through context because we're in the hands of a solid storyteller who deftly avoids the trap of accidentally slipping between points of view. So this, remember, is taking place in Chapter 10, and there have been multiple uh, point of view breaks all the way up until till now. And until now, there's not been one slip. So as a reader, you don't feel that whiplash. You know that these cues are telling you whose head you're in. Um, if we were dealing with that, somebody who slips back and forth between a uh, point of view accidentally, then we'd be completely lost here because we couldn't trust that when it says Leah felt that it's actually that's who this scene is about. So the reason that I'm going back over this again, like harping on this, is because it's so critical that from the beginning the reader knows who this scene is happening to or who it's about. And in this context, because we're in the hands of good storyteller, we know it by the end of the first paragraph, but we wouldn't if it was somebody who slips back and forth. So technically, 
This paragraph only kept the reader waiting until the end of one long sentence to clue them into whose head we're in. So this might not seem, so this might seem like a lot, a lot of noise about nothing. But from a mental movie-making perspective, everything that comes before that first critical detail, the first critical detail being whose head we're in, it's noise. It's wasted words, wasted space. The mental movie is on pause. It's waiting for the character so it can begin. And all that beautiful detail is just there. It's serving no purpose. It, it doesn't do anything. So in this scene, we're given the character's body rather quickly. But because it, too, is placed before whose head we're in, it fails to serve the purpose of placing the character in time, space, and place. Because we don't know who the character is, so telling us that the character is there doesn't, doesn't actually inform that issue. So it doesn't count, and it also becomes wasted space or wasted words. So here's some situational context to how these two key elements work. Some scenes are less demanding in terms of how quickly you have to establish who the character is. A book's opening chapter, for example, gives you a tiny touch more leeway because there's a blank, a blank slate expectancy that everything is new and the introductions will be coming. There's no other characters to compete for that space. It's, it's just emptiness. In stories that have only one point of view character, once the character has been introduced, you then have a straight across the board understanding with the readers to whose head we're in. So it's not necessary to reestablish it over and over. So that first critical element, you've covered it straight across the board. I mean, you still refer to the character and whatever, but we always know whose head we're in. Now, it can get complicated sometimes if you open a scene break or a chapter break with somebody else's name. Because even though you as the author know that it's a single point of view character, the reader doesn't know if you... If, if it's going to be someone else. So if you're in Jane's head and the whole book is from Jane's perspective and you start a paragraph about Aaron, who may or may not have already shown up in this without establishing that it's Jane thinking about Aaron or looking at Aaron or referring to Aaron, it's going to create these same kind of problems. So that is sort of an exception to the straight across the board understanding. But for the most part, the reader knows that you're always in Jane's head, so it's much less of an issue having to establish who the character is. Um, and that's because oh, we already know whose head we're in, so then when the character's body is presented in time and space, the mental movie already knows what to do with that, accepting situations when maybe you open with somebody else's name. And that's why it's important, because we need to know what we're doing with the body, where we are. It's also important to note, again, that character and character's body are both necessary for the mental movie to start playing. If you have a scene that doesn't quite feel right or that seems to be a bit wooden, try color coding them and see if you've got both elements on the page. More often than not, the character is there, but the character's body is missing. And that's going to fix a lot of your problems. And I, I, I see that even in my own work where the character is established and you start kind of telling what's going on. You start showing what's going on and you're like four or five paragraphs down and we still haven't seen the character's body. So it's all just disembodies. It's just there. It becomes noise until we know where the character is positioned in all this stuff that's happening. So we've spoken elsewhere about the importance of character in motion and making sure the reader knows where that character's body and making sure 
that the reader knows where that character's body is in relation to time and space is the umbrella under which character in motion falls. So let's go back to the example paragraph again. We're going to read it again. And we've already covered um, you know, whose eyes we're in and where the character is in. So now we're going to move on to atmosphere and mood. So it says, paper cups of bitter vending machine coffee dregs littered the scarred from my tabletop table in front of the couch Leah shared with Anna and Donna. Bailey and Jim sat on a matching couch facing them, looking as helpless as Leah felt. The waiting room clock was silent and had not appeared to move the last five minutes she looked at it. She stared duly at the cracks in the, at, in the aging turquoise vinyl upholstery. When did you find him? Bailey asked. So in this paragraph, the waiting room clock was silent and had not appeared to move the last five minutes she looked at it. That's a sense of atmosphere and mood. Um, the, the earlier opening details about the paper cups, vending machine, that did not give us any sense of place or any sense of, um, of where we are or anything like that. It, it was, it's detail and it's good detail, but it's not the sense of atmosphere and mood. So here's that element order again. We need whose eyes they're seeing the scene through, whose head they're in, where the character's body is in relation to time and space, and then a sense of atmosphere and mood. Now, atmosphere and mood is subjective and situational. In this example, it comes after the character and after the character's body, and this is good. There's no issues with its placement. Well, sometimes you'll find opening sequences that go into a lot of descriptive detail before letting on to who the scene is happening to or where the character is within that description. And sometimes, depending on the narrative voice and the genre, that works fine. So descriptive detail in this way, that sense of atmosphere and mood, it can go in front of character and character's body. But depending on how much of it there is, usually it's boring. And for a lot of readers, it becomes noise that they mostly ignore while skimming along, searching for the first sign of character. It's not wrong to do it that way, and we all know there is no the right way. But if your goal is full engagement and vivid men mental movie, and a vivid mental movie, you're usually, not always, but usually, better off using atmosphere and mood to position the character's body in time and space or else have it come after the character's body is positioned. So thinking about my own paragraphs, I think I have a tendency to open with atmosphere and mood fairly often. But for me, that's a means to an end. It's a vehicle to establishing character within the scene rather than just setting the scene on its own. And we're gonna talk more about that in a bit. Well, Taylor, we are up against what should be a deadline for the podcast listeners. So once again, <laughs> Um, if you're listening on the podcast, you're not watching the video, and you're enthralled by this, um, go to the Patreon page. There will be a link in the show notes. It, the video probably will not be up there immediately. Uh, we tend to do that uh, around a day after the, the podcast releases. Um, but, but you can continue the story there, or if you just want to keep listening to the podcast, we will be back again next week. And thank you for listening to this Hack the Craft episode. We're excited to be doing these again. And thank you guys for being here. And I just want to say, like, right now, there's a lot of information coming at you uh, in this. 
but it does tie together at the end. So if it's not really making a lot of sense now or it's still overwhelming, just stick with this and it'll all come together and you'll understand why I'm breaking it down in this way. And that's my little addendum. And then we'll see you next week.